The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I want you to turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 29, and uh, maybe some of you have already got this memorized already. How many of you think that it's good for God's people to be in God's house all of the time the word's being preached? Everybody agree with that? All right. Well, of course we do agree with that, I think. Uh, But there are some times when you pastor, as you pastor the church, that you wish that you could send out invitations to your sermon exclusively for certain members of the church, that they would be sure to show up for a particular message that you want to preach. I, I don't often target people with messages, and I don't necessarily mean that, but I do happen to know there are people in the church that need to hear what I have to say tonight. And uh, most of you uh, are not going to have any difficulty at all, I think, with the message that I'm going to preach, and you'll be glad for it, uh, and we're thankful for that. So you're probably not the ones at all that need the message. It'll just be an encouragement to you, uh, but we do wish that we had more members of the church that would be here to hear all of the sermons so they get all the well-rounded ministry of the church and get everything that they need, but unfortunately that doesn't always happen. But we're looking here at Psalm chapter 29 as the text verses for this little mini-series that we have going on worship, and here the psalmist says, given to the Lord, O ye mighty, given to the Lord glory and strength, Given to the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. There's a point that I'd like to make very strongly tonight as we get started into the message that living for Jesus must include the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said that the church is the way that Christ gives glory to the Father And what you won't find in the New Testament is any other method of giving glory to God other than the New Testament church. And so that means that the chief way that we worship God is the church, and Christians cannot live for Jesus unless the church church is a part of their lives. Now it's strange that there is so much said in the Bible about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, even things like this where uh, Paul said that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, When the Bible says things like that, it's hard to imagine that people could come up with the idea that you don't need to go to church, that the church doesn't need to be a part of your life, that you wouldn't be a member of a church and faithful to the church and then also actively engaged in the work of the church. God never accepted in the Old Testament worship that was not done according to his prescribed plan. Now, I've made that that point repeatedly throughout these few messages And how often, though, do we read that in uh, the Old Testament that Israel had set up different places for worship other than the one that God said that they were to to use, and and God would not accept that. There's an interesting story in the book of Joshua that illustrates this point, and it was when Joshua was ready to go into the promised land and the children of Israel were ready to conquer the land, that Before Israel went in, there were two and a half of the tribes that decided that they wanted to stay on the eastern side of Jordan. Now, that that part of the country was more conducive to raising cattle, which was their main occupation. And so rather than go in and uh, into the 
into Canaan, into the promised land. They wanted to stay on the other side, on the eastern side, and take their inheritance there. And in the book of Numbers, before uh, Israel came to the promised land, they approached Moses with that proposition, and Moses reluctantly agreed to it, but he said, before you can actually possess that land on the eastern side, you have to go cross the Jordan and help us to conquer the land, and then when everybody's when all the, the people have been driven out of the land and Israel has all of its uh, land that God has promised, then you can move back over to the eastern side and take your inheritance there. And so that's, that's what they did. Uh, everybody, all of the children of Israel, crossed over the Jordan. They conquered the promised land. And then when everybody was in their respective places in, on the western side of the river, then Moses, or rather Joshua, said, now you can go ahead and take your inheritance on the other side, these two and a half tribes. But what they did was, after they had taken possession of that eastern side, they set up an altar there. And when they set up that altar, the people on the western side of the river, the other nine and a half tribes, heard that they had done that, and they were very upset about it. And they were upset because an altar on the other side of Jordan divided worship. And that was not the plan that God had given. Now, so the people on the western side of the river, they were, as I said, they were very upset about that. And so they decided they were going to go to war again. Only this time, they were going to war against their own people, against those two and a half tribes. And they were going to destroy them for trying to set up an altar on the eastern side of Jordan. Well, there were some negotiations that went on. And after those tough negotiations, the one on the eastern side finally convinced those on the western side that the altar was not going to be a place of sacrifice, but they said, we're building this altar simply as a memorial that would tell our children that we actually do belong to the rest of Israel. Well, Joshua heard that, and he accepted that as a fairly good excuse. But the problem is, that wasn't what God said to do. And it wasn't long before that those two and a half tribes on that side of Jordan, uh, it wasn't a long period of time that they went into apostasy. In fact, they were the first ones to go into apostasy. And then a little bit later, those on the western side of the river began to build altars in other places. They began to worship in high places, away from the tabernacle, which God said was the place to worship. Now, at that time, the tabernacle was at Shiloh, and everybody was supposed to go there. And God said, you can't make sacrifices anyplace else but here. But they made those high places, and they worshipped there, and it wasn't long before the other tribes, the northern tribes of Israel, also went into apostasy. They were scattered and taken into captivity, and those tribes have not since been regathered. Well, why is all of this a problem? Well, it is a problem because it's not God's way of worship. There's a way to do it and a way not to do it. And when they departed from God's plan, the problem is they could no longer give God the glory that he deserves. God doesn't accept it, accept worship that's not according to the plan. And we, we well know the scriptures that it says to obey is better than sacrifice, right? Isn't that what the scripture says? Well, I would suggest to you that this is the same thing that is happening among Christians today. That the church is the place of worship, but there are many Christians who think that they're okay without the church. That they can just be Christians and don't have to worry about the church. And then there's a lot that happens inside of the church that's not acceptable worship. Uh, holiness is, is uh, uh, holiness in worship is to, to worship God in spirit and in truth. And whenever we depart from that formula, then we no longer give God the glory that uh, he wants us to give him. 
And so we have to glorify God in spirit and in truth, and we can't live for Jesus if we don't do that, because glorifying God is what living for Jesus is all about. That's the primary thing here. How do we glorify God? So what I want you to understand from all that I've just said is how important that the church is to the Christian life. That God's glory depends upon the church. And you can't be indifferent towards the church and at the same time live for Jesus. Now, the church then is very important for the form of worship that I want to talk to you about tonight. Now, before we get, though, to that fourth act of church worship, let me mention for you the first three that we've already discussed. And I've taken time to give you a sermon on each of these. And the first one, you remember, is the priority of preaching. And none of these are ranked except this first one. This is the priority. Preaching is the priority. It's the primary act of worship. Preaching the Word is the way that God speaks to us. And we should never have anything that's ahead of the Word of God. The next thing that we talked about was public prayer. That we worship God when we come together and pray together. We find that was part of the early church's practice. They prayed steadfastly with one another. The third thing we talked about was making melody. And that's the song service in the church, worshiping God in song. And unfortunately, the song service is often mixed up in the prioritized list. And people think that singing is worship and everything else is not worship. And so they're confused about that. Uh, At the Shepherds Conference this year, I heard a kind of an interesting story about this particular point. Uh, The Shepherds Conference this year was about the inerrancy of Scripture. The whole whole conference was geared towards that theme, God's holy word. And so you can imagine there was quite a bit said about preaching in truth and preaching God's holy word. Well, there was a story told about uh, an old Puritan church that there was a visitor that was in England and went to see one of these old historic Puritan churches. And when he went in, he noticed that there were these metal stands that were next to the pulpit. And he, and he wanted to know what those stands were about. So he asked someone there at the church, what are those stands for? And this person explained that, well, back in the day, uh, those stands held hourglasses. And when the preacher would preach, they would flip over the hourglass and start their next hour as he was preaching. Well, this person was curious about that, and he said, well, with so much time spent preaching, when did they ever have time to worship? And you could imagine the groans that went up from about 4,000 preachers that were there at that conference. Well, there's somebody who didn't understand what worshiping God is truly all about. Well, singing is very important for worship, but that's not the priority. That's not first in the church. Now, we love good singing. Of course we do. We love to hear Brian sing. We love good singing But we can do a lot better with bad singing than we can with bad preaching or with no preaching at all. So the preaching is the important thing. Well, that brings us then to the fourth act of worship in the church. And uh, I'm limiting in these sermons, limiting to just four acts of worship because we could talk about more. Uh, If you go to the book of Acts in chapter, chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, you have a pretty good outline there for church worship. And uh, we're not talking about all the things that are mentioned there. But there are a couple that I'm not going to talk about. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are also taught in those verses. But we're not going to discuss those. Those are very important for worship. But we've covered those fairly recently. So we don't need to talk about that. So we're going to talk about this this one other area uh, for worship. And number four on your listening sheet is the grace of giving. 
the grace of giving. And I hope that, I didn't hear any, but I hope that under your breath you don't sigh and groan when you hear that I'm going to preach about giving. Because if I didn't preach about giving, you, you would miss one of the most important acts of worship that we have in the Lord's church. Now there's an old saying that when we are absolutely sure about something, when we absolutely do want to support something, we say, put your money where your mouth is. Well, there, there's a Christian application that can be made to that saying. If you really love the Lord, you say that you love the Lord, then put your money where your mouth is. Now, the truth is that most Christians are more in love with their money than they are with Christ. And they like to hold on to their money more than they want to hold on to Christ. And the truth of that statement is never more clearly seen than when you start to look at statistics for how people in the church give. Um, the Bible commands that we are to give 10% of our income. That's 10% of our increase. We're to give that to God, and that is even before grace-giving begins. But you look at the statistics among Christians, and you find that most people are giving somewhere around 2% or 3% of their income. And the reality shows up when you look at our giving reports and you see that we struggle to meet the church budget. Now this year so far we've done pretty well, but historically we do pretty well in the first quarter of the year and then it begins to slip a little bit. And uh, you look at our church budget and you see that, well, we're, we're pretty close. You know, at, at times it's very hard for us to meet that budget. And when we look at it, it it's not really a faith budget. A faith budget is when we say, oh, we're going to take in $500,000 this year. When we know that there aren't enough people to support a figure like that. Well, God doesn't ask us to make every budget a faith budget, so we step out there and try to do the impossible with the finances of the church. But what he does expect is for us to do what we're told to do. To give what we can give and make uh, and uh, give what he says that we're supposed to give. And so what we do is we present a budget that's well within the means of the church. If everybody was a tithing member in Brian Baptist Church, we would have no trouble at all meeting our budget. Now, I'm not, I'm not particularly fond of chastising you about giving, but we do need to speak about this because giving is worship, and I'm supposed to preach about sin, and not giving is a sin. It's definitely a sin. And you know that I ought to be preaching about sin. So let me return to this statement because it is really a clincher. That if you want to live for Jesus and you say that you love Jesus, then put your money where your mouth is. Now it's certain that the early church learned about giving. They learned that concept about putting their money where their mouth was because they were very good about giving. And you think about that. Where did they learn about giving? Oh, in Acts chapter 2, when the church was just, just not very old at all, not very old, the people were already very excited about giving. And they didn't have a New Testament to study, but what they had was the Old Testament scriptures to look at and see what they were supposed to know about giving. Now, most of us would have our minds blown if uh, I told you that we had to do what the first church did. Now, the first church was the Church of the Apostles, wasn't it? These are the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. When they first started meeting after, uh, when Christ was risen from the dead before the day of Pentecost, there were 120 members of the church. 
And they were meeting in the upper room. And you remember that on that day, the Holy Spirit came. He fell on the church, and the church was empowered. And on that one day, the church grew in number to over 3,000. 3,120 disciples by the end of the day of Pentecost. And then, reading the New Testament, it was just a few weeks at most, and the numbers had swelled to more than 20,000 that were members of the church. And with that very rapid church growth came with it problems with church growth. So many members, and so many of them poor, and so many of them now without jobs because they've been cast out of their homes. They turned away from the Jewish faith. They were being ostracized, and they had nobody to take care of them. So what did they do? So many people, over 20,000 people, and no way to take care of them and to feed them all. So what did they do? Well, they were committed to one another. They loved the Lord and they loved each other. And so they began to sell things. They began to sell all their properties and brought that money and gave it to the church. What they were doing is putting their money where their mouth was. Now, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, it says, And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And then in the fourth chapter it says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Can you imagine living in a time when personal wealth was secondary to the cause of Christ? Can you imagine living in a day like that? And I don't want to panic you because I'm not going to tell you before this sermon is over that what you need to do is go sell your house and sell your car and your 60-inch TV and bring all that money to the church and put it here in the big pot and let's just have a big communal living type of situation. Well, I'm not going to tell you to do that. The needs of the first church were different than what we experience today. But there is certainly, there's certainly a principle that we can learn here. It, it's worth it to look at this and see what these Christians did and how much they loved the Lord and how much they were willing to sacrifice for one another. And one of the things that we notice here, or should I say that we don't notice, is that there are no Christians here that were promised boatloads of money in return if they would just sacrifice what they had for Christ. I mean, these are not what we would call modern charismatic Christians that invest money in the church hoping that they're going to get a bigger return than they do in the stock market. No, they gave everything knowing they were going to get nothing in return. So these aren't poor Christians that are somehow going to grow wealthy because they planted their seed faith money. You don't see that in the New Testament. These are just very simple Christians that knew that if they brought everything to the church, they might well get nothing and their reward would be an eternal reward. And what they look for is what they would receive in heaven. Well, communal living, that's not necessary for us. But there is a principle here to be learned. That we should love each other enough that we're willing to sacrifice for one another. And also to sacrifice to see that the Lord's church has the money that it needs to operate and to get things done. 
Now, we need to remember this, that our lives are about Christ. It's not about how much that we can accumulate for us. Now, there isn't anything wrong with being wealthy. Nothing wrong with that. But if God should give you a great blessing of material things, don't shortchange God. Don't fail to give God, to give back to him what belongs to him. And don't fail to give to God generously. And for sure you're going to be blessed. Now, I have a few pointers to help you about giving. But before we get to those, I want to answer this question. And, and that is, who is to give? Is there anybody that has an excuse not to give? Well, I would think that if anyone had an excuse not to give, it would be the poor. Wouldn't we say that? I mean, if anybody has an excuse not to give their tithes and offerings to the church, it would be poor people because they don't have very much. Well, is that what the Bible teaches? Well, let's take a look at that, see if it's true. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And while you're looking for that passage, uh, let me tell you what Paul had to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, he was speaking there to the Corinthian church at well, and he was reminding them of what their brothers and sisters in the Macedonian churches had done. They were very generous about their giving. So you look for that passage, and let me read this one to you, because Paul singled out these people in Macedonia for this very reason. It was their poverty that he's talking about. So he says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit, or we want you to know about the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. So do the poor have an excuse not to give? Well, according to Paul, it, it's possible for poor people to give. Now, you remember the story of the widow that... Uh, Jesus saw at the treasury, at the temple treasury, and she put her last two pieces of money into the treasury. And you remember the Z widow of Zarephath that was down to her very last meal, and let, yet she fed Elijah. So the Bible certainly has stories about poor people that gave. Now we look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and I want you to notice one phrase for now, and hold on to this passage because we are going to spend some time with it. But 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1 now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now notice there in verse number 2 again. Let every one of you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you. Do you see Paul making the exceptions there? Who are these people that he's speaking to? Well, these are the Corinthians. Many of them were very, very poor. Many of them were slaves. In fact, probably the majority of the church was made of poor people and of slaves. Remember in the first part of uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul said, There are not many noble among you. God doesn't call very many that are noble. So we're not talking about wealthy people here. And yet every one of them was commanded to give. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Because there are many Christians that think they're holding, they're holding an exemption certificate for giving. They're, they're not, they don't have to give. 
But even if there was an exemption certificate, I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't want it because giving is worship. And we love the opportunity to worship God. You know, I, I love it when church people consider giving to be a privilege. Sometimes we, or I uh, uh, may say that we have a, a special project that I want the church to support and we need to take an offering. And so we'll take a spontaneous offering. And many times when we do that, there are hundreds of dollars that are raised. Uh, I remember we took a very quick offering on a Wednesday night. We did that just recently, but some time ago, we took a, an offering where I just said, you know, we need to replenish our benevolent fund. And uh, we took that offering on a Wednesday. And usually the Wednesday offerings are small. People have already given on Sunday, or they will give the following Sunday. So we don't take in a lot of money on a Wednesday night. But on that night, I asked for an offering. And just very quickly, we raised $600 to put into the benevolent fund. And there are people who feel honored by that. Just ask us to give, and we'll give. And they love to do it. Well, who is to give? Everyone is to give. Children, teenagers, adults, everyone is to give. You know, if your child gets an allowance... You ought to teach them when they're very young. Start with this. Save some of that. Save a tenth of that and give it to the Lord. Now, when I was young, I didn't get an allowance. I had to work. And so I remember my dad started me out at 50 cents an hour. And uh, he taught me when I was very young, out of that 50 cents an hour, to give some to God, to give that tenth to God. And all these many years later, that stuck with me. And so... When I fill out a tithe check to put into the church, I I never sit there and think, oh, look, what could I do with this money? I mean, what could I do with this? There's so many things that I could spend this money on. My vacations would be really great if I could just keep all the tithe money. I mean, that'd be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? But I don't do that and think, well, what can I do with that money? Because that's God's money, and I'm glad to give that money back. Now, hold on there to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or rather... uh, First uh, Corinthians, wherever we are there, was it chapter 16, rather? Chapter 16, and I want you to just turn to Matthew, or rather Mark, Mark rather, Mark chapter 12. So keep your finger there, and, and let's go to Mark 12. This is a story I referenced just a moment ago. So let's take a look at this for a minute. This is, this is Jesus talking about that woman that was at the temple treasury. So in Mark chapter 12 and verse 41, And Jesus sat over against the treasury... And beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they that have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance. But she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Now you see verse number 44? There it says this widow had two pennies. That's all that she had. That's not very much. She had two pennies. Now don't think of that pennies and like American pennies. That's not what this is. It's more money than that. But this was all that she had. That's the point. She had two pennies, which wasn't very much, and she put that money into the temple treasury. Now what did Jesus do? Well, did he run over to her and he'd say, stop, stop, you're a poor lady. You don't need to put money in there. That's for everybody else. That's for the people that have things, the richer people. Let them give. You don't have to give. You don't have to put in any money. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't stop her. Why didn't he stop her? 
because everybody is supposed to give. It's not just the rich. It's not just the middle class. It's everybody. And you'll find this to be true many times, that in churches where there are poor people, that they will often give when the rich and the middle class won't. And many times poor people will keep up with their tithes when the rest of the people won't. God doesn't grant exemptions. God's not like the IRS. I mean, there are no loopholes when it comes to giving. You can't figure out a loophole in God's plan. And, and God has no non-tithable exemptions. And then besides that, the penalties for not tithing are a lot higher with him than they are with our government. Well, let's go on with the Bible's instructions for giving, and these will help you to worship him. Now, what are we to do about giving? Well, first of all, we are to give with a systematic plan. A systematic plan. There is a time and a place for giving. Now, notice how the scriptures place giving within the corporate worship of the church. There again in 1 Corinthians 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So there we have the time to do it. There's a set day of the week, and that is the first day of the week. Oh, the first day of the week, that's the day that the church meets. So that's a logical time for them to bring their offerings. Now, what we like to do, of course, is to add Wednesdays and to add other days as well because, quite frankly, it's impossible to get in and out of a Baptist church without taking an offering. So we have to add some other days to that. But the first day of the week, that's the one that works really well for us to bring our tithes and offerings because... Most of us will get paid the week before, and the Bible teaches us that the first fruits of what we earn, that belongs to God. And so we need to get it into the church before we have the temptation to use that money on ourselves. That's God's money. So let's bring it to the church on the first day of the week. And then we notice specifically where it is to be brought. It's to be brought to the church. That's who, who's Paul ta- who Paul's talking to. Bring it, gather together, and bring it to the church. Now, they brought it to the church on the first day of the week, and the church was to be the place because nobody else, nobody else is authorized to receive the tithes and offerings of God's people. Only the church is authorized to receive the tithe. Now, let me make a point about that that you have not given your tithes if you give it to the rescue mission. That is, you've not given it to the Lord. And you've not given your tithes when you give it to the heart fund. That's not giving to the Lord. And you haven't given to the Lord if your money goes to United Way. And you haven't given to the Lord if you send your money to the TV preacher. Tithes and offerings are to go to the Lord's church. Now, you might help other causes... And you can do that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you don't do it with the Lord's money. Now, you give other money, but you don't take the Lord's money and give it to any other cause. That goes to the Lord's church because the church is the only one that is authorized to receive the tithe. Why? Because nobody does the Lord's work but the Lord's church. That's why Christ set up the New Testament church, to do his work. That's his plan in the New Testament. So he didn't, he didn't say the Heart Fund or the United Way or, or anybody else, any parachurch organization or anybody else does my work. The Lord's church does his work. And that's to receive the tithe. He, that the church is to receive the tithes and offerings. 
Now, I would also tell you this, that while the money is still in your pocket, it is the Lord's money. It doesn't belong to you, and you have to learn that. I don't think there's any of you that would come to my house and you'd see a $20 bill lying on the counter that you would take that money and spend it on you. You wouldn't do that because you know that money's mine. To take that money is to steal it. And it's the same thing with the Lord's money. If you take what doesn't belong to you, it's the Lord's money. If you take it, it is to steal it. Uh, you know the scripture very well. Malachi 3.8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Oh, I'll tell you this, it'd be a whole lot better for you to take a gun and stick up somebody on the street and t steal their money than it is to steal God's money. Did you know that? It's a worse thing to steal God's money. Now, what I'm telling you, this is really old stuff for much of you, but it's a reminder for us. It's God's money. The money belongs to God, and that means that you don't have the right to use it the way you want to use it. And I'll also say this, that you don't have the right to bring your money to the church and then divvy it up and say, well, here's where I want my money to be spent. Now, when you bring your tithes and offerings to the church, it's the whole church's responsibility to decide where that money is spent. Why? Because it's the Lord's money. It's not yours. You don't have the right to say where the money is going to be spent when you bring it to the church. Now, you, you wouldn't like it too well if I said to you, you come into the church and you sit down in the seats, and I say, you can't sit in that seat. And you'd say, well, why can't I sit in that seat? And I would say to you, well, you can't sit in that seat because those seats are reserved for the people who pay for them. But I brought my tithes and my offerings. Oh, yes, you did, but we got your check, and you decided you wanted to send 95% of it to the missionaries. Well, that's a good thing, but who's going to pay for the chairs? You understand what I'm saying? Who's going to pay for the lights? Who's going to pay for the air conditioning? Who's going to pay the poor pastor? Who, 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 how are we going to do that? Well, if you divvy it up and you decide to send it someplace else, these things don't get done. And that's why when you bring your money to the church, it's the church's decision what to do with it. That's why we present to you a budget. And we say, this is the way the money of the church is going to be spent. And God's people say, well, that's good. We vote on that. We pass the budget. And that's what we do. So it's not your right just to bring your tithes in and say, well, I don't want it spent on this, bad. I want it spent on this. And don't spend it over there. Spend it over here. Now, that's a decision of the church because it's not your money. It's the Lord's money. So giving is not an individual decision. That is, once it gets to the church, that is the church's decision. So there is a systematic plan for giving. Bring it on Sunday. Bring it to the church. And if you can't get to church, send it in. Now, secondly... We are to give with a willing heart. God blesses you with your health. He blesses you with your life, with your daily provisions. And it's interesting that God says that you are to love him with all of your heart. And say that, you love him with all of your heart. Love him with all of your mind. Love him with all of your soul. Love him with all of your strength. And those verses, or that particular verse, tells us that God has the right to demand everything from us. He has the right to demand it all. But you know, God never said that you have to bring all of your money. He never said that. You don't have to bring all of your money. And you remember that was the trouble with Ananias and Sapphira? 
We're talking about the first church and how everybody sold their goods and they had everything common and they brought all of their money to the church. And Ananias and Sapphira said, we did that too. We brought all of our money. But they didn't. They lied. And the apostle Peter caught them in that lie. And the interesting thing about what Paul, uh, Peter said to them in, in uh, Acts chapter 5 was he said, you didn't have to bring it all. There, there was no compulsion for you to bring it all. It was in your power. It was your money. Of course, they need to bring their tithes. But he said, you didn't have to bring it all. Well, God deserves it all, but he doesn't ask for it all. All he asks is for us to give a proportion of the money back. Now, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. There we find a command for proportional giving. As God has prospered. We don't have any better proof in the New Testament anywhere for tithing than this verse. Do you think it would be fair if I said, all right, here's the payment. We're going to just, we're just going to make everybody give the same amount. And so everybody needs to bring $1,000 to the church this month. Well, some people give $1,000 in a month. Some do, not very many, but some do. But what if you bring $1,000 and you make $10,000 a month? That's 10%, isn't it? But if I said, bring $1,000 and you make $4,000 a month, then you'd be bringing 25%. That's not fair, is it? But God's way of giving is fair. It's a proportional thing. You see, when a person brings $1,000 and he makes $10,000, he hasn't really given any more than the person who makes $4,000 and brings $400. And that's why giving is fair. Proportional giving is fair. God says, bring it the way that he's prospered you. So you figure out what your income is and... You give 10% of that to the Lord. Now, I remember a few years ago here in this church, there was a, there was a fellow that gave $10,000 to the church all at one time. And I remember, this was before I became the pastor, actually, and uh, this person kind of wanted people to know that he'd given $10,000. And so I thought, well, at first, you know, that's a pretty good thing. Somebody's going to bring $10,000 and give it to the church, then why don't we recognize that person? Why don't we say something from the pulpit about that? Well, Pastor Cregan didn't say anything from the pulpit. And I wondered why. Well, he didn't because he knew more about the situation than I did. He knew about this person and he knew that this person had not given any money before. That he never gave tithes and offerings. That the $10,000 that he brought didn't even touch the amount of money that he owed. He'd been robbing God all of this time when he was very capable of giving tithes and offerings. But he just wanted to get recognized, I suppose, for that $10,000. And Pastor Cregan wasn't impressed at all. All of these years, he'd been robbing God. And because God's fair about the tithe, and because he is the resource for everything that we have, then we ought to be happy to return the small portion that God asked. I mean, think about it. He let you keep 90% when you couldn't have earned any of it without his power. You couldn't earn any of it without his grace to earn it. So why do we begrudge giving God 10%? 
Well, what should your attitude be about giving? Well, Paul explains that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 7. Every man, according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, do you see that? If you love the Lord and you say that you love him, put your money where your mouth is. Your mouth is give like somebody that does love. You ever seen somebody who's a cheerful giver? They're not calculators. Some people, they get their paycheck and they pull out their calculator. They're going to figure out what 10% of their, what they've made is. And they figure it out right down to the third of a penny. And then they argue with themselves about whether, should I round that figure up or should I round that down? That's not a cheerful giver. Now, well, this is what God likes. How about some of that? on-the-spot giving. Uh, you know you've already given your tithe on Sunday. So what do you do when I call for a spontaneous offering? We did that at the candlelight service as well. And I said, can we take an offering so that we can help the church in the Philippines to repair their vehicle? So I asked for an offering then, and people just dug in, and we were able to receive a very nice offering for them. And then we get a letter back from the Bible Baptist Church in the Philippines and they're just rejoicing because God had blessed them. We sent the money to them and they were able to get the vehicle repaired and they could get people safely to church. And there were people that came up after we took that offering. You know, I, I didn't announce beforehand that we were going to do it and so they weren't prepared to give. And so they said, can we give some later? Can we still get in on that? I mean, they really wanted to give. And the answer to the question is yes. John takes IOUs. But you have to remember that he breaks kneecaps, too, if you don't pay up the IOUs. And that's when you really learn to give cheerfully because John might be after you. So God says be a cheerful giver. Well, let's, let's finish very quickly. I've gone way over time, and I thought this was going to be a short message. Let's finish quickly. How are we to give? Well, we are to give with an expected blessing. And we're talking about worship. God is blessed when you worship him, when you are obedient to him, and when you give what he requires. God is blessed, and he says, and you can expect to also get a blessing. In fact, and you've heard it many times before, that giving is the only command that we have in the Bible that we're told that we can test God with it. He said, test me to see if you'll receive a blessing. That's Malachi 3.10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Now, let's just take this into consideration for just a minute. How much are you willing to test God? Now, I'm not going to say this, that we take chances with God, but I will phrase the question this way. Are you willing to take a chance with God? Now, here, here, here is how the blessings come back. This is real, really the measure of the blessing. It's related to how much faith that you have. Let me give you two verses and I'll close. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now that's very simply telling us there that if you test God on a small scale, you get a small return. You test God on a large scale, you get a large return. Now, let me caution you, don't think in terms of money. Now sometimes it does come back in money, 
But it also comes back in many, many other types of blessings that you'll recognize that God has given and you'll be thankful that God gave them to you. He can bless you in so many more ways than just money. And then there's also this verse in Proverbs 11:24. There is that scattereth and yet increaseth. There is that withholdeth more than is meat, but tendeth the poverty. So there are some who sow bountifully, and there are some that hold back more than is necessary. Holding back, the Bible says, turns to poverty. And that can be financial. It can be in the joys of life. It's interesting that Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, everybody tithes. Did you know that? Everybody does. He says, either to the Lord, or to the doctor, or the dentist, or the garage mechanic. Everybody ties. He gets his one way or the other. Then there's another person who, person who said, Every pound we call our own and every shilling we reserve for our own use is so much less for other people. The higher wealth of the intellect is not so exclusive in its nature. You do not lose your gift as an artist if you teach a class to paint. Only in a limited degree do you increase your mental endowments by imparting them to others. But we actually increase our spiritual riches by spending them. The more the bread of life you give away, the more you will find in your store. Spiritual wealth is like money wealth in this respect, that we must invest it if it is to increase. Hoarding money never adds to the heap. So that's good advice for all of us. Expect a blessing when you give, because God said it will happen. And you have that upon the authority of his word. So do you want to live for Jesus? Then you must worship him. Be in the church where you can hear God's word preach. Come and pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Come to church to sing with one another and lift your voices and praises to God. And then don't forget this. Come to church, bring your tithes and offerings, and expect God to pour out a blessing on you and on the rest of his people. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the time that we spent in your word tonight and uh, just the blessing that it is to be able to give to you. Lord, help us not to hold on to that money, but that we might freely and cheerfully give what you ask. And we know, Lord, we're never going to suffer because of that. We're not going to lack for anything because we've been faithful in giving. Teach your people that, Lord. Teach them to expect the blessing and to give faithfully and cheerfully and serve you in the church in that way. Thank you for all these things, Lord. Bless us and keep us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.